It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. And in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The American Supreme Court said that the Constitution doesn't mandate comfortable prisons. But in non-air-conditioned prisons in the American South during the summer, the line between uncomfortable and deadly gets pretty thin. And an encounter that happened a century ago today has influenced how science and the humanities talk to one another, or don't, even now. We look back in time to examine a momentous debate about time. But first. While much of the world is opening up from the pandemic, China continues its dynamic zero-COVID strategy, relying on lockdowns to stem outbreaks. Now, Shanghai's 25 million people are under a strict lockdown, one that was brought in haphazardly, taking many residents by surprise. A video on the site Weibo appears to show the government's response to residents on their balconies protesting against a lack of basic supplies. A drone with a loudspeaker flies around. The message is, please comply with COVID restrictions. Control your soul's desire for freedom. Do not open the window or sing. The arrival of the highly transmissible Omicron variant in the country's most international city is stretching China's COVID policy to the breaking point. It's hard to tell exactly what's going on on the streets of Shanghai right now. The 25 million residents of the city are locked in their homes. So what's transpiring on the streets, uh, most people don't know. Don Wineland is The Economist's China business and finance editor and is based in Shanghai. From what we can tell uh, looking at Chinese media, this has turned into a major operation kind of led by the central government. I think it looks like some kind of military operation. Tens of thousands of people are being brought into the city to help manage the outbreak. They are busing tens of thousands more out of the city to take them to quarantine camps. Some people are being taken hundreds of kilometers away. So that's how things are shaping up. And how have people reacted to to being locked down in this way? So we're seeing all sorts of comments surfacing online about the, the terrible conditions in the city right now. Some people are complaining that they can't get their elderly parents to the hospital for chemotherapy and other cancer treatments. One father was saying that he was running out of epilepsy medicine for his child. Uh, when it comes to food, people are complaining that they've ran out of food several days ago and are struggling to order things online. One thing about China is that it's very easy to order food on your smartphone. Those systems have essentially broken down in Shanghai over the past couple days. 
there are videos of people who have been locked in their districts or their housing communities and they're protesting. They're, you know, they're yelling, let us out, give us food. Uh, there's quite a bit of violence in some of these videos where the folks in hazmat suits are beating people up that aren't following the rules. I've seen some of people being grabbed by the hair and yanked out of their apartments, ostensibly to be taken to quarantine centers. So there's all all manner of videos like that. One that really stuck out to me was a video of very, very young children, toddlers, you know, children that were probably only months old, sitting in a medical facility and a couple nurses taking care of them. And these were children that had tested positive for COVID and were removed from their households and their parents were not allowed to go along with them. I would say that those types of videos have struck at the heart of this problem um, and have really upset a lot of people in this city. This doesn't sound as if it's a lockdown that was that was planned for. That's correct. The Shanghai government has been trying to avoid locking down this city. It's a business hub, a finance hub. So for many weeks, it took a very targeted approach. If cases were detected in a district or in a housing community, they would lock down those specific areas. Some people in the city have already been locked down for several weeks. About a week ago, the government announced that it would start a citywide lockdown, and that would be rolled out in two phases, first in the east, then in the west. That has now passed, and the city is still locked down. So I think we can tell from that that this is probably going on longer than the local authorities had planned for. And we've talked a lot before about the uh, the sustainability of China's zero COVID. This looks like a real test of it now. Yes, I think it is a test. But at the same time, the central government is not going to bend anytime soon. So that means keeping this city locked down for as long as it takes to get back to zero cases. Yes, that's going to be very, very difficult with Omicron. But really, the other option is letting it run wild or at least allowing cases to continue to increase, that also is not a great option for China, given how so many elderly people here are not fully vaccinated. One thing that we do see or we we, we think we detect on, on the local level is some management of the figures. So a phone call with a local official was recorded surreptitiously and then and then shared. And, and one thing that we have been able to hear from that phone call with this public health official is that the health apparatus here is also not completely happy with the way that this is being carried out. A lot of the measures are considered very political as opposed to public health solutions. You mentioned in particular the elderly that, that are at risk here. Why, why is that the demographic that's concerning? We found that to be the case in, in many places around the world, especially in Hong Kong, which has just gone through a massive outbreak. China's in a very similar situation. Um, elderly people are more hesitant to get a vaccine, we found. Some of them are afraid of getting sick from the vaccine. Of course, you know, the Chinese government has put out all sorts of anti-vax propaganda over the past two years. It's often called Western vaccines dangerous. And this has come out in state media. So it's not surprising to see elderly people being hesitant to get these jabs. There's also some complacency here. China hasn't dealt with full-blown outbreaks like the U.S. and Europe. Some people just have decided not to get jabs because they haven't had COVID infections near them ever. Of course, this attitude is probably going to change. 
Well, it, it may change depending on how exactly this this current situation plays out. I mean, what what is the exit strategy from this uh, this heavy handed lockdown? Is there an exit strategy? So, for exiting from the Shanghai lockdown, there is no end date right now. It is an indefinite lockdown in the same way that Wuhan was uh, two years ago, which is a bit disconcerting. The only way out, really, at this point, is to get cases back to zero. So take sick people out of the city, take them to field hospitals, and just keep doing that for as long as necessary. I think that is pretty much how we will see this play out. In terms of an exit strategy from zero COVID, this is something, of course, the central government is thinking about, um, and they've been playing around with ideas for a long time. It's unlikely that that will happen anytime this year. That's because there's a very uh, important political meeting at the end of the year. The country's leader, Xi Jinping, is expected to extend his term in office uh, for another five years. So the thinking is that there can't be any great political crises or social crises in the run-up to this political meeting. So that means the government will probably try to keep things on lockdown up until that point. Afterwards, many people expect a slow transition away from zero COVID. That means more vaccines, probably not taking asymptomatic people to quarantine facilities, but it's going to be slow. I mean, um, a year from now, if we're there, I would be uh, a bit surprised. Thanks very much for joining us, Don. Thank you. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Almost 90% of American homes have air conditioning. The post-war development of the American South is unthinkable without it, as are the more recent population booms in Florida and the Southwest. And as New England and the Pacific Northwest grow steadily warmer, there too air conditioning has become a necessity rather than a luxury. But one group of Americans still swelters through the summer months, with deadly consequences. The summer months in America can be unbearably hot in prison, especially in the South, where a lot of states lack air conditioning. Prisoners have died during heat waves, which has prompted wrongful death lawsuits against the states that held them. Alexandra Sewich-Bass is The Economist's senior correspondent for politics, technology, and society. It's true that some states allow prisoners a personal fan. They can sometimes buy it from the commissary. But that does very little good in extreme heat, as any of us who have spent summer in the South when our air conditioning has broken down can attest. This issue of the lack of air conditioning prisons has been getting more attention, and people are calling for it to be installed. Some states have been considering it, but not everyone has moved forward. And so which states or which jurisdictions have air conditioning and which do not? There's a real patchwork of states that do have access to it and many that do not, especially in the South. So Florida, for example, offers air-conditioned housing units in only 40 percent of its state-run correctional institutions. 
Texas provides it in only 30%. None of Louisiana's seven men's prisons provide air conditioning universally where prisoners sleep, although the single women's prison does. And not all states are in agreement about whether this is something that they want to invest to expand. So you're talking about places like Florida and Texas and Louisiana that are just, as you said earlier, unbearably hot in the summer. Why are they and other states reluctant to install more air conditioning? There are a few reasons. One is the attitude that this is part of someone's sentence, that it shouldn't be an especially easy thing to serve in prison. And so tough-on-crime attitudes are fueling part of this debate. Prisoners as a constituency don't carry much political favor. There's the perception that prisoners are already likely to support Democrats, and so Republicans have no real desire to offer them something that could play into Democrats' hands. And Democrats don't necessarily want to be portrayed as investing a lot of money to help people who have committed serious crimes. Another stated reason is frugality. So the Texas Department of Criminal Justice has estimated that it would cost a whopping $1 billion to add universal air conditioning in the state. A lot of prisons are old, were constructed before air conditioning existed, and it's not like a house where you can easily install new ductwork. This has to be escape-proof and done to a certain grade. I think that it's likely that that $1 billion figure is vastly overblown and is being used as an excuse not to take action. But this has been a subject of debate for many years in Texas. Last year, the Texas House passed a bill that would expand air conditioning in prisons, but without offering any funding, and the Senate never took it up. So the status quo continues in Texas. The really hot status quo continues, but it's not just prisoners who are uncomfortable inside those prisons. It also affects guards too, right? Absolutely. And I think this may be a turning point in the conversation around air conditioning and whether or not it's worth the investment to air-conditioned prisons. Already, prisons are suffering from staff shortages, and high temperatures help fuel that. Prison guards who are already working for relatively low pay don't want to have to suffer through uh, un-air-conditioned facilities for long hours. Recently, James LeBlanc, who's secretary of Louisiana's Department of Corrections, testified to state lawmakers that the lack of air conditioning is a major reason that his department is short about a quarter of its correctional officers. He's estimated that the cost of adding air conditioning is around $30 million, which is a fraction of Texas's scary figure. And in fact, in 2021, North Carolina appropriated around $30 million to expand air conditioning to all prison beds. So there is appetite to do this in part to ensure that the guards are properly taken care of. What about legal challenges? I imagine that some people at some point have argued that it's that it's cruel and unusual to force prisoners to serve their sentences in these conditions. A few state courts, like Wisconsin, have ruled that incarceration in extreme temperatures violates the Eighth Amendment, which bans cruel and unusual punishment. However, the Supreme Court said in 1981 that the Constitution does not mandate, quote, comfortable prisons. So there is some legal uncertainty about how much states really need to offer to prisoners and the conditions in which they can be kept. Texas is facing 16 lawsuits related to air conditioning and heat in its prisons. Uh, Those are pending. 39 have already been closed, nine of which involve wrongful deaths. I've spoken to a few policy analysts on this subject, and some believe that 
spending federal funds on expanding air conditioning one time is shrewder than continuing to deal with ongoing litigation, which is sure to continue unless air conditioning is expanded and the underlying issue addressed. All right, Alexandra, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, John. The notion of time pervades all of human experience, but what exactly it is isn't so easy to explain. Many have tried, philosophers and physicists alike, but it was a clash exactly a hundred years ago today that brought the philosophical and the physical into pointed conflict. On one side was Henri Bergson, a fantastically famous philosopher whose ideas about time had already influenced a generation of thinkers and writers. On the other, Albert Einstein, 20 years younger but no less famous thanks to his mind-bending theory of relativity, which said that time was, well, relative. There was no fixed tick of the universe, time was wrapped up with space, and both could warp and stretch. Their debate isn't just a historical footnote. It set the tone for scientific and anti-scientific debates even a century later. At issue was really not just the whole question of what time is, which is pretty important and interesting in and of itself, but really the claims of science versus the claims of philosophy. Brooke Unger is an international correspondent for The Economist. Is there only scientific truth or are there truths beyond scientific truths? So that really is what's at stake in this encounter. Tell me how this debate came to pass. How is it that they ended up having this clash? Well, Henri Bergson was the most famous philosopher of his time and had written about time from the very earliest stages of his career. The entire basis of his philosophy was, in fact, his understanding of time. And Einstein, who discovered relativity, had a very, very different notion of time that was really directly counter to Bergson's. And so Einstein came to Paris in 1922 to give some lectures By this time, he was an extremely famous physicist. His theories, to some extent, had been proven. And Bergson, who was in the audience, not at one of his lectures, but at an event that took place after his lecture, he was kind of persuaded to stand up and essentially give his view of time to rebut Einstein's conception of time. And it was really Bergson's rebuttal and then Einstein's response to that rebuttal that constitute this debate. So what's at the heart of that divergence? What is, the, what is the, the substance of the difference between the way Bergson thought of it and the way Einstein thought of time? Well, the theory of relativity kind of directly contradicted our perceptions of time, our experiences of time. I mean, it suggested that people moving relative to one another will have time tick faster or slower, depending on how they're moving. And it suggested that time is a little bit like space in the sense that you know the past, present, and future are spread out in a four-dimensional space-time manifold, as it's called, which implies that the future is kind of just as real as the present which is not at all how we understand the future to be. And Bergson proposed an alternative idea, and his alternative idea he called duration. And duration essentially is the notion that the present is, you know, not just an isolated moment in time, but it consists really of everything that came before it. And it is therefore unique. And because it's unique, 
it allows for novelty. Novelty in the sense that, that we have free will, that our actions are the unpredictable outcomes of our will. And so this understood time as having passage and flow, as having an open future. And that really was what was at issue when they met in Paris. So how did it go when Bergson confronted Einstein with this divergence? Well, basically, Bergson got up. He was actually prodded to sort of get up at this event, this gathering of philosophers where Einstein also was, and present his own views. And he did this actually by basically summarizing a book that he was working on, which was a response to Einstein's relativity theory. And he got up and he basically gave a, not a reading from the book, but but sort of summarized what part of the book had to say. And Einstein then gave this kind of rather short and quite withering rebuttal saying the time of the philosophers does not exist. There's the time of the physicist and there's psychological time, but there's no philosopher's time. And a lot of people thought that Bergson really lost that debate. I mean, after the debate, Bergson, who was, you know, kind of a rock star philosopher at that time, his reputation waned and Einstein, his reputation became such that he was named Time Magazine's Person of the Century. So it was a turning point for their reputations, but it was also a kind of an important event in this diversion of understanding between sort of the humanities and, and the sciences. And so a century later, why is that still important today? Why are we still talking about this this split? Well, I mean, I think we're talking about it for two reasons. I mean, I mean one reason is, you know, Bergson is sort of seen as an, a kind of an intellectual ally for people who believe that science doesn't have the last word on anything, for people who accuse science of engaging in what they call scientism. And, you know, they look to Bergson and they see somebody who was a very scientifically literate philosopher and he certainly accepted science and, and in fact accepted the theory of relativity. But he said philosophy has more to say. And so that's one reason he's important. He's one of the most eloquent exponents of this view that science and the material world are not the only truths. And I think the second reason he's important is that we live at a time when science is under attack. You know, it's under attack from people who doubt the efficacy of vaccines, for example. And one of the reasons that Bergson is seen as dangerous I think, by some scientists, is because he appears to take the anti-scientific side in such debates. I think that's a misreading of Bergson. I mean, one of the things that Bergson insisted on is that philosophy had to abide by the findings of science. But he does try to carve out space for truths that transcend science. And people who think that science has claimed too much authority for itself look back to Bergson as a champion of their cause. Brooke, thanks very much for your time, as it were. Thank you very much, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.